You are listening to The Lift Mindset, where we provide an update from the experts. Today, we have Dan Thompson, Investment Manager, and James Cartwright, Investment Executive, looking back at the events of 2022. This podcast does not constitute as advice. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the final Lift Invest podcast of this year. We're in December, and we've clearly covered a lot of ground given the numerous events which have occurred throughout 2022. I'm joined this month for his annual appearance by James, who will provide commentary on a few different topics as we move forward. I'm going to begin in chronological order, which is, I think, sensible, and you know, set the scene from where we were leaving 2021. And at that point, there was quite a positive outlook for economies and markets. Now, clearly, as time has moved on, that's not been the case. But as we were entering the year, there was quite a positive feeling that pent-up demand post-COVID and a lot of the unlocking and and spending which was likely to occur would be beneficial for for economies. At the same time, however, we were still coping with a few supply chain issues which had had overhung from, from the COVID days. There was still kind of zero COVID policy being pursued by China, which was in contrast to how the Western world were were tackling things. We also, of course, had the beginning of the interest rate cycle where central banks were turning away from their inflation is transitory rhetoric and were beginning to raise rates. But clearly that's again come on somewhat throughout this year. So if we just kind of stick with China to begin with, they have continued with this zero COVID policy, which has been one of the detrimental factors to to long-term growth or expectation of long-term growth for years in the future. And there have been a lot of comments around how long they can continue with such policies, given that China has got such a, a far reaching impact upon upon other nations and the, the economic prospects of, of not only economies, but also specific companies which have got a lot of their supply chains in China. So with that brief intro, I'm going to immediately hand over to James and just if you just want to provide more comments, which I know you've prepared on China and any of the relationship that China has with other themes this year. Thanks, Dan. So absolutely no doubt that China's zero COVID policy is helping to drive a global recession. China is the world's largest exporting economy and the second largest importer. It has four of the top five busiest ports in the world and by extension eight of the top 20. All these ports are very efficient. I was watching a video the other day and they have driverless lorries which help sort of transport uh, shipping containers through the port. So a lot of trade obviously originates and ends in China but it also passes through China. So it is probably the most vital cog in the world's supply chain. At the start of the year, the percentage of shipments arriving on time was less than 10%. did improve to around 20% around spring, start of summer, and it's just kind of stagnated since then as China is sort of in and out of their uh, sort of zero COVID policy. China's government also predicted that the economy would grow by 5.5% in 2022. They've revised that down to around 3.3%. And just to provide a bit of colour to that, that equates to around $384 billion of lost GDP. So incredibly significant sums there. It was also seen as well that Apple seen shortages in their, their iPhone 14 Pro and 40% of their typical inventory is only going to be available sort of going into the Christmas period. So it's just a sort of brief comment you know, on how 
China's shutdown is affecting global supply chains. This quite clearly has a knock-on effect to inflation. And if we sort of move chronologically through the year, February saw the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which in turn has sent inflation soaring across pretty much the entirety of the Western world. Ukraine itself is known as the sort of breadbasket of Europe. It has a lot of natural minerals. It's a massive exporter and producer of food and these minerals. So it does rank in the top 10 producers for maize, wheat, potato, sunflower seeds, carrots, cucumbers, and even for titanium, manganese, graphite, and uranium. At one point, it produced 50% of the entire Soviet output for iron. So it has eased ever so slightly because if you remember back in July, there was the Black Sea Grain Initiative, which was brokered by the UN and Turkey, which did allow shipments to leave Ukraine and reach parts of the developed and developing world. So I think since then it's allowed over 500 ships full of grain and foodstuffs. um, It has eased slightly, but at the same time of the last few months, prices are again starting to increase, partly as a result of winter and you know a lack of harvest in these other countries. Fantastic. Thanks very much, James. Yeah, so so sticking with inflation, there would be little argument with me saying that inflation has very much been the word of the year in markets. And exactly as you just mentioned, James, how there have been really concoction of different factors which have led inflation higher and have certainly currently proved that central banks changing their rhetoric in terms of inflation not being transitory correct. Inflation has certainly in Europe and and the UK, continues to be elevated. It hasn't yet dropped back, but there are expectations that next year, as we, you know, we are in a recession, it's just yet to be confirmed by the figures. You know, once that recessionary environment takes hold, as well as kind of the base effect from the very high prices seen, certainly in the energy sector in March last year, given the the invasion of, of Ukraine, then inflation will begin to fall back. So right now, as we sit here today on the 13th of December, the most recent inflation figure for the UK is is October, where it was 11.1%, which is as high as it's been since records began 40 odd years ago. And we've had three months where inflation has been higher than 10%. And we're expecting that when later this week, the November print is is provided that again, it will be around that 11% figure before it kind of drops back in, in February, March time. But it's still extremely high in both Europe and the UK. In the US, it's a bit of a different story. That's really because their their economy is really stronger and is, is less impacted by the energy prices that, that Europe has seen. You know, the US, for example, is, is now a net energy exporter, whereas certainly in the UK, we are not. And there, there are other technical factors why. But if you look back, we begin at January, inflation began the year in the States at 7.5%. By contrast, it began the year in the UK at 5.5%. So US was already kind of slightly ahead of, of where UK and Europe was. But then it climbed from 7.5% to 79 to eight and a half to 8.3, 8.6. And it peaked in June at 9.1% and has ever since been been falling month on month. So it's fell in July to eight and a half, then 8.3, 8.2, 7.7. And then for November, which will be released in the next few days, it's expected to fall again to 7.3%. And that kind of trajectory is, is what is 
expected over the next few months in in Europe not not to the same same level you know it will be still six months away where we see prints on on current expectations in that seven percent range but it is still expected to fall back but as I say kind of the US has, has been ahead of, of Europe and UK that short-term news flow of, of inflation falling back has been very beneficial to to markets more broadly but again for the first half of the year when inflation was increasing quite swiftly it was clearly to the detriment of markets but there are now a lot of comments around whether the, the federal reserve should continue raising their interest rates or whether they should take their foot off the gas and, and wait for inflation just to drop back and see what the longer term impact of the rates which have already risen to a significant degree is inflation has very much been the story of the year russia ukraine there doesn't seem to be an end in sight. Sadly, there doesn't seem to be any real progress made in terms of there being kind of a political solution to, to the war or, or any solution at all. There have been you know, a few shoots of positive news, but again, you know, every time that there's a bit of positive news, Putin does something unexpected, like trying to step away from the grain deal or conscription of local forces in or, or civilians in Russia. And in the last 24 hours, he's cancelled his, his annual address the nation which you know, has always been one of his big milestones in, in the year for him to kind of answer questions from, from the general public and you know, really kind of be that face of the people in Russia but clearly kind of sentiment against Putin not only globally but also in, in Russia now has, has turned somewhat. Whilst Russia-Ukraine is still ongoing and it would be very positive from numerous different angles if there was a solution. We're not expecting one, but if there was, it, it would no doubt be, be positive and, and would improve market sentiment. But in terms of interest rates, as inflation has been very high this year, we've seen interest rates being raised across the board. Just to put a few figures around that, we, we are due later this week in another round of hikes which will be final hikes for the year. We're going to see another round of half percent hikes from all of the ECB, the Bank of England and the, the US Federal Reserve. So the Federal Reserve, to begin with, they've begun the year at a range of 0 to 0.25%. And it's expected to end the year that that range will be 425 to 4.5%, which is a, a massive 4.25% leap, which hasn't been seen since the 1980s, which I'll come on to in a minute. The ECB this year, their rate began at 0%. And after the expected hike tomorrow, they're expected to close the year at 2.5%. And, and then the Bank of England was a quarter of a percent at the beginning of the year. And after the hikes this week, again, they're expected to finish the year at three and a half percent. So clearly we've we've moved up significantly there. Markets are continuing to price further hikes next year before they get cut towards the, the latter end of next year, which again, kind of in the short term has, has been a, a more beneficial environment because it was expected just a few months ago that rates would have to be increased throughout all of next year and that the first cuts would only be seen in, in early 2024. That's been the wider rhetoric and, and as interest rates have risen to an extent not seen for, for decades, that's been detrimental to asset prices because a lot of them depend upon and are priced based upon current interest rate and in the market you know, outside of what, what i look at in financial markets it's clearly had an impact on other financial products such as mortgages which in some cases are tied directly to to the bank of england rate and in other cases are tied to you know the, the five-year swap rates which again earlier in the year were increasing but in the last month or so have, have been staying pretty steady moving over to the us so a lot of what we talk about 
is dependent upon what's happening in the US economy, what's happening with the US Federal Reserve. Why is that? Well, on a market cap basis, the US continues to be around 60% of, of global market cap. So therefore, what happens in the US has a much broader impact upon, upon markets. And everyone focuses upon the Fed and everyone focuses around what their rates will be and how strong labor is, you know, what the what the unemployment rate is, underlying core inflation, all that kind of thing. There's a lot of focus around US prints more than there are any other region in the world. When you look at the US now, I've already mentioned they this year they've raised rates from zero to four point two five percent. The last time that there was any rate hikes anything close to this was in 1994, which was incidentally the first year where the Fed began their current policy of forward expectations around what targeted interest rate they would have. So back in 1994, they raised rates from 3% steadily up and up to four, five and a half percent, which, you know, two and a half percent interest rate hikes doesn't sound like loads given how we've moved this year. But believe it or not, that was still, you know, back in 1994, so decades ago, 28 years ago. You have to go back to 1980 to see when rate hikes in a single year were more than they have been this year. And 1980, that was before this policy that they, they currently stick to, where rates are a bit more steady and they're, they're slowly increased and then cut more dramatically. Uh, and there's much more news and, and rhetoric around the, the, their future expectations. So in 1980, believe it or not, this is when rates were around the globe were above 10%. The year began with rates at 14%. They were then raised to 15% in one meeting. And then the next meeting, they were increased to 20%. So 5% increase in a single meeting. The same year, they were cut to 8%. And then they finished the year up at 18%. So again, you know, that's a 4% hike from 14% to 18%. But given the environment that we've been in where rates were nothing up to them now being four, four and a bit percent. The quantum in our expectations around there being very little uh, level of interest rates, very low mortgage rates to a level now where, you know, from 4% to from 0%, they have a much more impactful effect. That was decades and decades ago, and that just shows why sentiment right now is as poor as it is. But when we look forward to to 2023, really, as rates have already risen to, to such a degree, and there are kind of fears around a recession, then it, 2023 may well prove to be quite a good one for, for markets, given the potentially room for interest rates to be cut. And certainly, there's plenty of room for, for sentiment to improve. So that's the, the whole monetary policy picture. I will move across to another kind of key aspect of this year, particularly in the UK, which is politics. I have talked about this myself for the last couple of months, given the, the mini budget of, of Truss and Quartang, the now both ex-Prime Minister and Chancellor, clearly. But James, I will hand over to you just to you know, talk politics and then I can fill in, should you require any further detail for myself. Probably the second half of 2022 has been one of the most turbulent political periods in living memory. So just to just to have a sort of relatively quick recap, Boris Johnson had been kind of dogged by a relatively steady flow of scandals and misconduct accusations and even survived a vote of no confidence from his own MPs in June. But the straw that broke the camel's back for him was his lax handling of the sexual misconduct of MP Chris Pincher. 
So the immediate response to that was that Chancellor Rishi Sunak and Health Secretary Sajid Javid resigned from government in very quick succession. I think the letters went in a matter of minutes after each other. Both of them highlighted the decreasing standards of integrity in Johnson's leadership. This prompted what I can only really describe as an avalanche of resignations and ended up being over 50 paid government employees who resigned over the next couple of days. Uh, so when I say paid government employees, they were all MPs, there were ministers, there were secretary of states, there were trade envoys. And I think there was a, there was at one point me and you, Dan, we had a, a meeting with one of our UK fund managers and I was keeping an eye on BBC News. And I think in that one hour, seven ministers had resigned. So it was an unprecedented period. Boris Johnson saw the writing on the wall and resigned on the morning of the 7th of July. Doing so, that sort of fired the starting pistol rather bitterly fought uh, leadership election. About 11 candidates declared that they were going to run and there were another 20 or so who were rumoured or expressed an interest in running but ultimately didn't. After a couple of weeks that field was whittled down to just Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak. The bitterness didn't stop there and there were some very tempestuous TV debates in that time, a lot of personal attacks. Truss eventually won on the 6th of September by a margin of 57.4% to 42.6%. That was quite significant. It was a lot, it was much uh, tighter than expected. Some pulses were predicting, you know, 60, 65 plus percent for her. Probably should have caused her to maybe take a step back, take stock and think, oh, maybe I should reach out to a few of Sunak's supporters. But ultimately, she didn't. She did stock her cabinet full of her own supporters, which, you know, may have contributed to her downfall a month or so later. On the 23rd of September, Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng announced a flagship fiscal event. They didn't want to call it a budget because that would mean that the Office of Budget Responsibility would have to publish their own independent guidance on it and they didn't want that. One of our fund managers who we met at the time called it political chicanery at its worst. So in it they set forward a range of rather significant policies including cutting the basic rate of income tax to 19p, confirm that the government would cap energy usage at an average of £2,500 per year for households, cancelled national insurance rises, they cancelled corporation tax rises, they cut stamp duty and the kicker was right at the end of the speech quoting announced that he would abolish the 45p rate of income tax. Now, the immediate response was deeply negative from the public, from international bodies and figures. So the IMF launched a, a bit of an attack on Truss and Quarteng. Even Joe Biden, I think he was at a, an ice cream shop at the time and he, he was asked what his thoughts were and they weren't particularly positive, which in and of itself is a rather extraordinary intervention, even if it was just a couple of stray comments. But most significantly, financial markets hated it. Uh, the two most pertinent effects were that the pound fell from 1.13 to 1.03 within a couple of working days and government guilt yields surged to over 5%. Now, government guilts are effectively known as a safe asset. They don't, they generally don't move that much. They have been on the rise this year as a result of interest rate increases, as a result of quantitative tightening, but that is kind of expected. It's companies and market observers can sort of take that into account but they surged almost 200 basis points which 
ended up nearly causing a genuine financial crisis. The reason for that was that many defined benefit pension schemes use what's known as liability-driven investing. They provide leveraged exposure to gilts. Now, if gilt yields go up, they need to provide a little bit of extra collateral and liquidity to their schemes. In doing so, they sell underlying gilts. Because yields went up so quickly, all pension schemes were doing this. Now, this prompted something that's known as a death spiral. And this sent yields even higher and in created environment where there were nowhere near enough buyers to counteract the massive amount of sellers. Bank of England then had to step in in its role as a buyer of last resort. It bought basically long dated government bonds, which helped stabilise the market. Now, I won't go too much deeper into that, but you know the unfortunate consequence for Trust and Quarteng was that the damage was done to their credibility with both markets and the wider general public. Quarteng ended up being sacked on the 14th of October in place of Jeremy Hunt. And in quite a remarkable address, I think after two days of him being Chancellor, he sat in front of TV cameras and just undid the vast majority of that mini budget that his predecessor had set forward. And it was almost like he was stepping in saying, I'm in charge, this is what's going to happen. Trust lasted less than a week after that. There was overwhelming pressure from within the Conservative Party and she was forced to resign on the 20th of October. In doing so, she became the shortest serving Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. And that was at 49 days. Now, interestingly enough, Rishi Sunak is actually on 49 days at the moment. So that gives you uh, some indication of how remarkable it was. I also saw a stat as well the other day, which I think is worth repeating, in that between 1997 and 2016, there were three prime ministers, three chancellors and one monarch. And that was beaten across just two months in 2022 by one extra monarch. And even if we go back to July, it would beat it by another chancellor as well. So it just kind of gives an indication of just how chaotic the last few weeks have been. Yeah, I mean, the, the turbulence in, in the gilt markets was very much unprecedented. There were a lot of questions in September regarding if that volatility would persist. At the time, it was more cautious portfolios, which had been in you know, more heavily invested in government bonds, which had been impacted to the downside more than, than more adventurous, kind of more, more equity-led portfolios and there were, there were questions around whether a split of portfolios would, would continue, whether you know the, the old cautious approach was fit for purpose. And really, you know, in the weeks since, we have actually seen cautious portfolios outperform those more adventurous ones because the yields have, have dropped back pretty much just to the, the same levels they were before all of the, the trust Kwartang era began. Already, a lot of that has been been ironed back out. And we, we of course, do believe that mm-hmm. over the, the medium term, it, it will be those more equity heavy portfolios which do outperform, but do also suffer from, from greater volatility. And that's really the, the point of portfolio construction is that we will build portfolios which do have higher expected returns, but also have higher expected risk, risk being volatility, risk being that when you look at your valuation, whenever it comes through, that there is a a greater deviation in what those asset prices could be. It hasn't been a a sharp drop back, but it has been relatively swift in terms of yields. And and as those yields have fallen back, then prices of government bonds, as well as all bonds in the market have have increased. So that already is is very much behind us. And, And as I say, for the last month or so, they've 
they've been quite settled. So from mid-November till now, um, yields have really been quite settled. That's been the, the political backdrop. Also, I think it's worth talking about, and this is something that I've mentioned throughout this year, even at the end of last year, we were talking around market expectations and sentiment in the market. And I think in the short term, sentiment can have a much more impactful effect on returns than than even underlying fundamentals of businesses or even political effects and new things which are which are coming through inclusive of the, the volatility around the trust quartang era you know that's very much unprecedented you know the midterms in the us whether there's a new government whether there are new policies unexpected policies announced or touted all of them do take a long time to feed through particularly to financial markets sentiment in markets in terms of whether the wider market is expecting things to be quite poor or whether wider markets are expecting things to be particularly positive. If there's a change in that sentiment, then that can lead to quite a substantial short-term move in, in assets. And this year has been one where we've come from a level of very high optimism to one where there is very poor pessimism. And right now that sentiment is still decade-long lows. Again, kind of the last two or three months have, have seen some of that turn. We're not quite as low on that kind of pessimism scale as we, we were. But interestingly enough, you know, it's also been earning the season. So we've seen an interesting concoction of, of companies which have been beating earnings, companies which have missed their earnings and how they've reacted in this market, which is already quite pessimistic. The, the pessimism has come about because interest rates have been hiked to such a degree. There's a lot of uncertainty around economies. Labour markets are still remaining quite firm, but in terms of inventories and supply chains and consumer sentiment, they're all quite bleak. And that's leading everybody, and this, this happened six months ago, pretty much the whole market. First, they believed it would be in the UK and, and Europe, which is, as I say, kind of happening. We're just waiting for the, the official figures to come through to confirm it. But we're in a recession now, and it's likely to persist throughout all of next year. The US has been toying with the idea that it might go into a recession. One of the key indicators in financial markets for recessions is in the bond market. And you can look at the yield of a two-year bond and the yield of a 10-year bond. In normal times, what you see is that longer dated maturities have a high yield than those of shorter dated maturities. And why is that? Well, that's because over time, it's expected that interest rates will increase. And because you're taking more risk from taking on a longer dated bond, then you will be rewarded for taking on that, that added level of risk. That's in normal times. But every so often, you see that that short dated, that two-year yield, goes above that of, a, of the 10-year yield. And that's called yield curve inversion. And that historically has been quite a good indicator of, of recessions. And over the last four months, that has occurred also in the US and it remains inverted. Now, not only is it expected that there was a recession already in UK and Europe. There will also be one next year in the US. That's why a recession is expected. And that's why pessimism is, has become kind of as low as it has got to. In the last two, three months, however, because the pessimism was so low, people are beginning to think about, OK, well, asset prices have fallen to such a degree. What's the market's view on, on how bad things will get? And are we any more positive or any more negative upon that market view? That's how you try and make money. You're, you're trying to look at your own expectations versus the market. Can you take advantage of, of any mismatch anywhere? And over the last few months, a lot of market participants have begun to think, yes, we're also pessimistic, but the market is even more pessimistic than we are. And therefore, relatively, we're optimistic and we should therefore put money to work in more risky assets which have performed so poorly this year. And therefore, broad markets have recovered.
recovered from their lows, which were, were hit in around September, depending on, on which region you're in. You've now seen three consecutive, including December, you've seen financial markets on the bond side and equity side recover in October, November and now December. And in the States, you also have just gone through the third quarter earnings season, third quarter, because all of the results from the third quarter are, are released during the fourth quarter. So we won't know full year financial results until early next year. But during that, that earnings season, and as I've already said, there was already a lot of pessimism involved. So earnings per share estimates were slashed by 7% or so in the run up to, to this earnings season, so Q3 earnings season. Normally, in times of when kind of a recessionary environment is, uh, is abound and there is a, a downdraft upon expectations of corporate earnings, you see that being slashed by around 4%. So already, you know, 7% versus 4% to the downside is still kind of more significant. That shows that markets are pessimistic. When you look at the, the different sectors, although you know, the broad market has, has rallied throughout that period, when you look at companies which have beaten earnings versus companies which have missed, those that have beaten earnings haven't actually performed particularly strongly relative to the broad market. So typically, you see that if a company has beaten its earnings, then that's more beneficial and markets have got it slightly wrong and share price should rally because, you know, actually the, the fortunes of that company are, are better than, than the markets were expecting. Therefore, the price that you should be paying for that company right now is, is higher. So typically, you would see that when, when companies beat earnings, they rally. So that's been true. Typically, when S&P 500 companies have beaten earnings, they've rallied relative to the market by around one and a half percent. So for example, on a day that the market's at one percent, if you've beaten your earnings, then you'd expect that company would be up two and a half percent. However, this earnings season, the companies which have beaten expectations in the S&P 500 and by expectations, it's not only earnings, it's also revenue. So if you've beaten both earnings and revenue this quarter, you've relatively outperformed the market by 1.3%, which is less than the historical average of 1.5. So you've, they've still beaten it as to be expected. However, they aren't rewarding companies by quite a, a greater degree as they usually would. Now, the real kicker, however, is companies that have missed. So normally over that same, you know, the, the whole history of the S&P 500, on days when companies have released their earnings and they've missed market expectations, the average fall relatively is 2.4%. So if the market's up 1%, then, then typically these companies would be on the day down 1.4%. Typically, they fall in 2.4%. This quarter, on average, S&P 500 relatively have underperformed by 6.7%, the largest relative underperformance ever for a single quarter of, of earnings. That's the biggest underperformance. How do we interpret that? Well, clearly markets are pessimistic. They're looking forward and they're saying, OK, well, companies which right now, before the recession, is properly taken hold in the US, companies already which are missing earnings, we don't want to be holding them. And so these companies, you know, in many cases, done quite poorly this year. Investors have got no appetite to continue holding those companies. And they are, they just want to be focusing on those businesses which have been performing quite well. Now, in this market, typically it's been the tech companies which have been underperforming so you've you've seen the like of you know, amazon alphabet you know facebook the big tech names which were the stock market darlings of 2020 a lot of them are missing earnings and they've really been pummeled in this this kind of market but on the flip side there are 
sectors and companies which haven't kind of in years gone by performed particularly well but in this market they've been holding up much better than the markets are expecting and they've been rewarded for that you know names which haven't particularly been mentioned in, in previous years such as Goldman Sachs and Bank of America they've posted better than expected profits you've even seen Netflix which has been very volatile this year but Netflix they posted bumper earnings and their share price on the day jumped 13 percent but that's already after it's fallen quite significantly this year. So generally you're seeing the differentiation between different sectors now, and really it has been the underperformance of those large tech names, which has, has really hurt the broader index on a relative basis. Although through earnings season, the market was rallying, underneath the surface, there is this interesting dynamic going on between financial stocks I've just mentioned there with Goldman Sachs and Bank of America, and, and there are other names I could mention, that beneficiaries to different degrees of, of a higher interest rate environment. But financial stocks typically haven't been the ones where, where investors have, have focused in past years. Likewise, you're seeing tech names which have been all where market has been focusing and where a lot of concentration of the, the US market, they've really been underperforming. This year and, and last year, we've been reducing our exposure to US passive funds, which as the index is set up by market cap, they will, will buy kind of the bigger businesses and they will have less of, a, of an exposure to relatively small businesses. And we've been adding to, to active funds, which are taking and then looking at all this information day to day, and they're taking more of an active view around which sectors do they think have got better prospects in, in this market. That story of earnings is going to be very interesting to see if, if that continues through next year or whether there is a point where there are stocks which have fallen 70, 80% this year, whether there is a point where markets just go, actually, these companies and a long-term view still remain very strong businesses. Just 2022 was a very poor market for them, but now they've fallen so much. And now that the, the economy is in a bad way, which will affect pretty much every business, we'd rather buy the ones which kind of on a long-term earnings growth prospect are the strongest. It'll be interesting to see how that develops, but certainly, you know, it's been interesting for myself to see how those different sectors have, have reacted through the latest earnings season. I think we've covered many of the main themes there. There will be early next year another recording that I do with Stu, just like I did last month with question and answers. So if you do have any questions for us, please send them into your advisor. Or we will try and answer as many of them as we can next year. Without further ado, I wish you all a very happy Christmas period and speak to you all again next year. Thank you for listening. We hope you have learned something new today from our experts. If you would like to find out more, please visit our website www.lift-invest.com or search for Lift-Invest on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn and Instagram. Don't forget to like and subscribe to hear more from the Lift Mindset.